Well, hello and welcome to Grace Church. My name is Bob Bryce and I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you today as we continue in our series, At Home for Christmas, where we're walking through this most unusual Christmas season together. I remember growing up in Indianola, Iowa, we had this, this little five and dime store in my town called TG and Y, TG and Y. And it was for me, at least, a highlight to go there. At one time I was there in the toy section and I, I must have been just completely mesmerized by something because when I turned around to look for my mom, she was gone. Like gone. Now, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I was definitely old enough to know that I was lost and young enough to be just absolutely scared out of my mind. What if she accidentally forgot about me? Uh, what, what if she got all the way to the car and drove off thinking that I was still right behind her or with her? Or, or worse, what if I had been so bad that she just left me there on purpose because she just couldn't take it anymore? Well, it turns out she was only one aisle away. But in those few moments, I felt totally lost and totally abandoned and, and paralyzed by fear. Now, have you ever had this happen? Have you ever, ever either gotten lost uh, as a child, or, or maybe you lost your own child in a store or someplace else? If you have, you know the feeling. It's, it's scary. It's instantly scary. Because wondering whether or not you've been abandoned is one of the most fundamental feelings uh, that upsets us as human beings. Uh, it's very upsetting uh, every time we think we've been abandoned, right? But but what about when it comes to our relationship with God? What about when we start to wonder, is God still there? Or is he there and does he care at all? Well, today we're going to look at a section of scripture that I find, when it comes to this, very, very comforting. And I hope that you do too. But before we get into it today, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to get together. Thank you for bringing us together by the power of your Spirit as your very body. We ask now, Lord, that, that you reveal truth to us and, and uh, transform us in ways that we're not the same people anymore, that, uh, that you put our old selves to death and that you raise us to new life in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, if you remember from last week, we talked a lot about God's special relationship with the second king of Israel, King David. And, and this was during what we called uh, kind of like the golden age of Israel. Because at that point, David had conquered all of his surrounding enemies, not through his own power, but by the power of God. And then he had consolidated all of the 12 tribes of Israel into one unified, united kingdom. And, and things were good right at that moment for Israel. And, and they, matter of fact, they were so good that David wanted to build God a permanent house in the capital city of Jerusalem. But God had other plans. Instead, God flipped the script on this all upside down. And God was the one that established a house for David by making David into a household name and then promising him that his throne would last forever. Somebody from David's line would be on the throne forever. 
which was true right away because David's son Solomon carried on this dynasty. And, and he was actually the one that did build a house for God. He built the temple in Jerusalem about 40 years uh, later than what we were talking about last week. But then we also talked about that while Solomon started off great, like most of Israel's other kings, he eventually went way off the rails. He had 700 wives and, and began worshiping foreign gods and foreign idols. And he actually went as far as building altars and, and they called them high places for these false gods, which really, really stirred up the Lord's anger and started Israel down a path toward destruction. Well, Solomon's evil ways began to fracture this special relationship with God. And one of the consequences was that God split apart this kingdom. David's kingdom, remember, all the 12 tribes had been united into one thing, and God said, no more. So God gave the northern 10 tribes to one of Solomon's officers uh, named Jeroboam. And this guy had rebelled against Solomon, thought Solomon was making mistakes. And so uh, the Lord said, all right, fine. I'm going to give the 10 tribes of Israel to this Jeroboam guy. But these two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and Benjamin was much smaller, so it was mostly Judah. Those are going to be saved for Solomon's son named Rehoboam. So you've got two names here and two kings and two kingdoms. You've got Jeroboam in the north who became the king of Israel. And then you've got Rehoboam in the south who was the king of Judah. But the really important question here is, is not so much where they were, but who they were. Maybe more specifically, who would be faithful? Who would be faithful? Because this is the same question that's implied and repeated all throughout Israel's history. Who would remain faithful to the Lord? And when it came to these guys, the answer, unfortunately, was neither of them. Both kings led their people not into the ways of the Lord, but away from the ways of the Lord and directly into greater and greater sin, which is really unfortunate because there's a special thing about kings. I don't know if you know this or not, but, but a good king is of great benefit. A good king is of great benefit. When the king is a good king, then great things happen for the people in the kingdom. But when kings are bad, the people always suffer. There's a direct correlation. In other words, good or bad, the actions of the king have a ripple effect throughout the entire kingdom. So with neither Jeroboam in the north or Rehoboam in the south remaining faithful to the Lord and, and keeping the Lord's commands, things started getting worse and worse for both Israel and Judah. And the, and the Lord was growing more and more upset with both of them. Now you can read more about this in uh, 1 Kings, 1 Kings specifically chapter 14, but I think we can sum it up in just a few verses. In verse 7, in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 7 says this, uh, now this is to, to Jeroboam in the north, king of Israel. I raised you up from among the people and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been 
like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made yourself other gods, idols made out of metal. You have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. And then just a few verses later, just a few verses later in verse 22, God has this to say about Rehoboam in the south, which is really not much better. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those who were before them had ever done. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones, and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. So it was really getting worse and worse and worse. Because remember, the one really big no-no is you shall have no other gods before me. And here they are worshiping other gods. One after another after another. Bad kings. In fact, God eventually became so angry with the unrepentant northern kingdom of Israel and all of its bad kings that, that he allowed the Assyrians to come and conquer the northern ten tribes and wipe them off the map, never to be heard from again. Yikes. But here's where things start to get even more interesting. Because even though the southern kingdom had many bad kings of its own, who, again, one after another, continued to do evil in the sight of the Lord, Judah was still the unmistakable kingdom of the line of David. And remember, we talked about there was this special agreement, this special promise that God had made with King David, and that was that David's throne would be everlasting. There would be a descendant of David's on this throne, not just for a little bit of time, but forever, everlasting. And, and even though the sins of the people and the sins of the king would be, would be harshly punished, God promised that no matter what, he would not revoke the promise that he made to David, regardless of how bad things really got. But did he? That's the question for today. Did he? Did God, did God change his mind? Were, were the sins of the people eventually just too much for, for God to overcome after all? Did God just abandon them? That's a question that the people of Judah had to wrestle with front and center because in 587 BC, 587 years before Christ, after 100 years of uh, sustained... I guess it's actually more than 100 years. After hundreds of years of a sustained pattern of sin and with them ignoring continually, ignoring, warning after warning from God's prophets who just kept trying to say, hey, look, you, you better get this under control because otherwise there's going to be consequences. God finally said, you know, enough's enough. He allowed the king of Babylon to bring his armies in, to siege Jeru Jerusalem, to burn Solomon's temple that he had built for the Lord to the ground, and then to take the people of Judah, including, by the way, the very last descendant of David with rights to the throne, took them all into exile, moved them out from Jerusalem, and took them to Babylon. And so, was this the end? 
Was this the end of of God's people? Was this the end for his chosen ones? Had their disobedience finally caught up to them to the point where God was just totally fed up and said, all right, I'm just throwing in the towel, forget about this whole thing, and just abandon his promises completely. In exile, in Babylon, for almost 70 years, the people of Judah were understandably confused and afraid. How? How? How could God allow this to happen to us? How could God leave us? They were completely devastated. And of course, after the city was destroyed, they were forcibly relocated to a new home that they didn't know and a home where they didn't want to be. And Psalm 137 verses 1 and 2, I think really does a nice job of of showing kind of the lament of the hearts of the people. And so verse 1 says this, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, or Jerusalem. There on the trees we hung our harps. As they sat there by the side of the river, dismayed, I'm sure they wondered, where is God? Where is God? Now that's a feeling I can imagine that we all at some level can relate to one way or another, especially given the circumstances in our world right now that seem and feel so hopeless, whether it's, it's politics or, or racial tensions or relational decay, we face lots and lots of different kinds of enemies to our collective well-being, right? As COVID-19 continues to ravage people's lives through sickness and sadness and despair and even death, Do do we too wonder sometimes, has this particular enemy somehow successfully snuffed out the promises of God? Was this too much for God? Could he just not handle it? Do, Do we wonder if our economy and our country have been conquered so much by this viral invader that we just, well, we just can't recover from this? And where is God? Where is God in all this? Has has he abandoned us? Has he abandoned me? Boy, it can sure feel that way sometimes, can it? Or maybe it's even more personal than that. Maybe you're thinking, well, if God distanced himself from his chosen people of Israel, how in the world could he ever be close to me? And maybe, maybe you're wondering right now if God wants anything to do with you at all. And you're not alone in that. All of us, at one point or another, all of us feel that way at some point in our lives. But it was in the midst of their despair, in the midst of their desperation, that the people of Judah began to find hope again. They began to find God again. God's prophets had not just been prophesying exclusively about the coming punishment for all of these sins, but they had also been talking about God's great faithfulness, and and making promises that that it would not end in disaster. They talked about God's mercy. They talked about God's grace. So sprinkled all throughout these ignored uh, warnings of coming destruction were pretty consistent reminders that God was and is and would always continue to be with his people. He would continue to be with them through it all, no matter what. 
That's true for us too, even when it doesn't seem like it, even when it doesn't feel like it. So today we're going to take a look at part of Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah was a prophet who who talked a lot about this. Isaiah is one of the longest books in the Bible. But Isaiah chapter 40, uh, I think that this little section really gives us the opportunity to see that while God did pause the promise in the sense that for a while there was not a king from the line of David on that throne. That throne sat empty for quite some time. God did not revoke, and he certainly didn't forget about his promise, but more especially, he did not forget about his people. God was very much still with them, just as he is still with us today. So we're going to read mm, a chunk of scripture here today, uh, starting in Isaiah chapter 40 at verse 1, and then we'll come back and look at this uh, a little bit more as we go. Uh, Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make a straight path in the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because of the breath of the Lord that blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, The sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is a great message of comfort and hope. And it has so much contained in it. We could spend weeks on just this section alone, but... Today, I want to ask three specific questions that I think reveal deep, deep truths that are not only things that comforted God's people in this time of exile, in this time where they were exported from Jerusalem to Babylon, but these are still things that should comfort us greatly today. And so the first of those questions is, does God care? Does God care? Because sometimes... It doesn't feel like he does. But right away, in verse 1 of this, of what we just read, God already answers that question. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now, we're not talking about the kind of comfort here where we might, you know, kind of think of like a warm blanket by the fireplace and sipping, you know, a hot cup of cocoa or something. This kind of comfort, the kind that's talked about here, is, is a deep assurance that even though the circumstances are extraordinarily difficult, even even though they they seem actually impossible, God's love for them has not wavered one bit, not one bit. 
Now, in the Hebrew language, then, when they repeat words right in a row like this, comfort, comfort, it's so that extra emphasis is added to, to kind of elevate the significance, so that's really notable. So when it says comfort, comfort, we should hear that to our ears more like, this is the comfort of all comfort, the comfort of all comfort. And that this is the kind of comfort that can only come from knowing that God has indeed not abandoned you. God has not abandoned you. Notice that God still refers to the people right here in this verse as my people. And he reminds them that he is still their God. He says, your God. So God has not orphaned his people during their struggles. He's still their God and he still cares for them. And even though the people feel far from God, they feel that they're at a great distance from God and they, they feel like God is so far away they can't even see him. They don't even know he's there. And maybe that's you today, by the way. God is actually never far away from us. Not only that, but he cares for us more than we will ever be able to know. We just get a little glimpse of, of how much. If we take a look at, at verse 11 here, it says, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Now, that might sound like simple language, but this is actually a huge promise. And it's bigger than just this particular situation that we're reading about. It's for you and I today. This is for us today just as much as it is for them. Because if you have faith in Jesus, and if you trust him to be your shepherd, then there's great comfort in knowing that he's already, already, he's scooped you up, and he is carrying you close to his heart, no matter what you might be facing, no matter what you're dealing with. God absolutely cares deeply for you. And if it's true that God cares about you and I this much, then the next question is, is God able to actually do anything about it? Is God able to do anything about it? Our situation. In other words, does, does God have enough power to get the job done? Or has he just been conquered by our problems? Well, remember earlier that we said that these kings, uh, they have the power to make things good or bad for the people. And this language that's written all throughout uh, Isaiah, uh, especially in this little section in chapter 40, is, is very kingly language. And so take a look again at verse 3 and you'll start to see this. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now what this is referring to is, is what happens when a king comes to town. When kings would come to the towns, people would honor them by building them new roads for them to come in on. And so kings would show up outside of the city and there would be a new road that was built in honor and celebration for the arrival of the king. And while we don't necessarily have any direct comparisons to that today, I, I kind of think about like 
you know, when the president comes to town, the, the roads are blocked off. There's a route that's planned, p patrol cars, uh, escort the motorcade. Uh, the exact travel route and plans are all planned out to the very inch. And why do they do this? It, you, we might think it's just for security, but it's also for efficiency. They want to make it as an efficient pathway as they possibly can. So when we see this language about making a new road, it, it's not just any kind of road that they're talking about making here. It's a highway. The highway is significant. It's a highway in the desert. It's a highway in the desert. The most uninhabitable place that you could possibly imagine, especially to build a highway. And so what's the significance of this imagery? Well, it's because the king is coming. The king is coming, and he's coming in an unexpected way. But, but unlike the bad kings over and over again, like we said, the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, this king is entirely different. Because remember, God, back in the beginning, he did not want Israel to have a king. God said, you don't need a king like other nations. I will be your king. But the people said, oh, no, we want to be like other nations. We want, other, like, the other nations have kings. We want to have a king. Well, this has not gone really well ever since then. But God still is a different kind of king. He wants to be the kind of king that he always wanted to be. And he's a king that's powerful enough, but not from this world from outside of this world. And he's powerful enough that even the, the landscape changes just upon his arrival. The, the valleys are raised up. The caverns are filled in. The mountains fall down. This is real power coming from a true king like the world has never, ever seen or understood, which, which I think shows us how badly this king wants to come to us shows you how badly this king wants to come to you. He, he moves the heavens and the earth just to get to you. He makes a highway in the desert just to get to you as quickly as possible. But, but unlike with the worldly kings, where the new roads had to be built with, with human hands and blood, sweat, and tears, this, this road is built by none other than the word of God coming from the mouth of God alone. The highway itself is paved with the promises of an out-of-this-world king who is the only one powerful enough to actually keep those promises. So who will be faithful? God alone will be faithful. God will continue to be faithful. And this king has the power to change absolutely everything. I don't know if you happen to catch this. It's kind of a funny sounding phrase all the way back at the beginning in verse two, but right at the end of verse two, there's this funny thing. Be listening for it. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. Now here it is, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, double for all her sins. So the first thing we notice is that this God is powerful enough to pay the debt associated with sin. He does this himself. The people don't pay for the sin in terms of, of what God is talking about here. God is making it right, but the debt is paid. That's just the beginning. That's not the end. There's, there's more to it because God doesn't just pardon or excuse their sin. It says that they've received double 
for their sins. That's this weird phrase. Now, when we first hear that, sometimes we might be tempted to think, well, you know, this means that God was, in fact, so angry that he punished them. And then just for good measure, he punished them all over again, maybe just for fun. Like beyond what the crime really demanded. But that's not what is happening here at all. God is giving his people double for their sins in a positive way. This is a positive thing, not a negative thing. It means that God gave more than just a pardon here. It's more than just forgiveness of their sins. It's actually much bigger than that. Which, again, today, if you're a follower of Jesus, should remind us about these promises that Jesus makes to us. Jesus doesn't just get us out on bail for our sins. He, he actually destroys the entire prison. So it's not even possible to go back. He didn't just take the penalty for our sin. He also gave us something. He took our sin and he gave us his very life. He gave us his life. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, we become something that belongs to God while he takes something from us that is putting us to death and keeping us in bondage and in change. In other words, chains. In other words, when we become a Christian, when we come to know Jesus and when we follow him and we trust him, then he takes our sin, no matter how bad it is, no matter what it is, he takes our sin upon himself and he puts it to death on the cross. But he doesn't then turn around to us and say, well, okay, now you have a clean slate. So just from here on out, try not to screw it up again. We all know at least at some level, despite how much we tend to think of ourselves, we all know deep down that just doesn't work. We need, more than a, we need more than a clean slate. What we need is a clean heart. We need a clean heart. And that's exactly what Jesus gives us. He takes our sin and our shame and then raises us to a new life in him that's only possible by the power of his Holy Spirit. So yes, Turns out, God does have the power to save us. But the way his power works is always shocking. It's always surprising. It's surprising to the world. It's surprising to us. Even as followers of Jesus, it's very surprising. So think about this. Jesus, nailed to a Roman cross, looked like the total defeat, the defeat of, uh, of all defeat. But instead, what it was, was actually the very power of God doing what God can only do. And this is the same kind of power that we see demonstrated in what we're talking about here with, with the tribe of Judah in exile here. Look at verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Now notice that God has a mighty arm. That's a, that's a Hebrew metaphor for power. He has a mighty arm. But the real question is, what's he carrying? What's in his arm? Is it a sword? Is it a machine gun? Uh, maybe a flamethrower? No. Remember, 
His hands are already full. His hands are already full of the lambs that he's carrying close to his heart. He's carrying his lambs close to his heart. That's you and me, his flock, all who belong to him and all who call upon his name. He is our God, and right here, he calls us his reward, recompense, his reward. He carries us because he values us so much that he calls us his jewels, his reward. And so his everlasting word that does all of this is clearly powerful enough, all on its own. And so if God cares about us, and God is powerful enough to deliver us, then the last question is, will God do anything about it? Will he do anything about it? Well, here's where we need to, we may need to make a jump down to the last few verses of Isaiah chapter 40. Now, these are some of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, uh, and so you might recognize these, but starting in verse 27, I just want to read these last few verses. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now, even though This is not the kind of king that we're expecting. May not even be the kind of king that we think we want. This is the king that we need. This is the king that we need. Because remember, a good king is of great benefit. A good king is of great benefit. And this good king, like no other king, is one that can rescue and restore us from our sin. But not only that, he also gives us his strength to carry on when we stumble and when we fall. He gives us his strength so that we can wait on his timing. And he gives us the confidence that we need in order to pray that his will be done, not ours. His will be done instead of our own. So whatever you might be facing today in in this world that's, that's uncertain and it's full of struggle and division and and disconnection. You might be waiting right now. I know I am. I am desperately waiting for COVID to be over. I'm waiting for lots of things right now. And I think in this time of desperation, we can look around and we can quickly grow disillusioned and desperate and hopeless. And we can wonder, is God even there? And I hope that this message from Isaiah 40 will let us know and remind us that God is indeed always close. That he cares and that he is able. And not only that, but he's willing. When we turn to him and when we trust him, that's when he scoops us up and he carries us close to his chest and he claims us as his very own children forever. Take comfort today in knowing that God is indeed faithful.
There's no question anymore. God is faithful. His promises are true. And his faithfulness is most fully and finally expressed in the person of Jesus Christ, who we celebrate this Christmas season, the coming of our shepherd king. Amen.